The 16 Days of Activism for No Violence Against Women and Children campaign launched on the 25th of November and culminates today, the 10th of December. During the 16 days period, government, together with civil society and the private sector, have hosted a series of community and sector dialogues and activities to foster a collaborative effort in dealing with gender-based violence. The 16 days campaign forms the central point of government's comprehensive 365 days of activism for no violence against women and children. We are very lucky to have a guest from Cape Town today who's been interviewed via Zoom. Lenina Rasul has over 15 years experience as a journalist with a focus on human rights and social justice. She has worked for mainstream media including Femina magazine, Cosmopolitan magazine, independent newspapers and that was before she moved into the non-profit sector where she now produces content across print and web platforms at Activate, Change Drivers and Open Up then code for South Africa. In 2017, she started at Cape Town TV as news editor and anchor of Our City News, then through the Ford Foundation to produce and present the Woman X Show, a weekly television show that covers issues around gender-based violence and child protection. Welcome from Cape Town, Lenina. Welcome, Luke, and hello to all the... um to all the listeners, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you because you will be concluding um, our 16 days. And I think that you and I over the last little while have had a bit of interaction around sort of the systemic failures of our system in dealing with gender-based violence. Will you just give us some kind of indication of what you are doing for the 16 days? Um, yes, so, uh, you know, I, as you said, I produce the women's show, so my ongoing activism is through media, um, where we sort of delve into the drivers of gender-based violence and also, you know, have a post-reporting focus. So there is a, a strong focus on systemic um, failures and trying to make the process um, more visible sort of after you report abuse. Um, and then just in a personal capacity, uh, myself and a friend and dear activist, Felicity Guest, are running a campaign on social media called hashtag 16 days, 16 fails. And that is also just to shine the spotlight and raise awareness about sort of systemic failures in the justice system and the social welfare system for um, victims who do report and, and a lot of this work is centered around the fact that our larger narrative, I think, in South Africa and across the world is that abuse is wrong, gender-based violence is wrong, we need to end gender-based violence, and that if uh, women or children are experiencing abuse, that they should report it. Um, but there's very little interrogation of the services after they report. Um, and I often, you know, highlight the fact that we have an 8% conviction rate for sexual assault. So in 2018, 2019, there were over 50,000 reports of sexual assault to um, the police, and almost 50% of that was uh, assault on children. Um, and we had less than 5,000 convictions. And so it's important for people to know this, and it's important for people to understand that these services are also a civic issue that we should, as citizens, um, and as people just be, need to be engaging about whether our systems are working or not working, and then asking why. In terms of the campaign that you've been running, the social media campaign, really highlighting just 
how are we failing dismally? We, we're failing those that are reporting and speaking out. And we have been sharing those on, on our platforms as well. How much of this, the fact that the system fails those that speak out, actually stops people from speaking out? Wow, I, th- I think a lot of it. Um, there was, you know, if I if I were to just, I think, come back to the issue of sexual assault and rape, there was a very interesting um, study done by the Medical Research Council. And um, I'm so sorry, I don't have the statistics with me right now, the exact stats. But, you know, a large portion of those uh, cases that don't end in a conviction, a lot of them are dropped um, are dropped halfway through because of the amount of time and um secondary victimization and a range of reasons um, that these cases take some up to three years and when you look at what does that mean for the victim and and you know the multiple postponements that people go through um i think that it does discourage victims of violence from reporting i know at least of one case where a woman was brutally raped had reported it had an outcome I and mean, you could you could <laughs> You, we would say a positive outcome, but, you know, the, the perpetrator got 10 years and he was out in six years. Um, but she did get a conviction. However, the experience was so traumatic for her that when she experienced a second sexual assault, she consciously chose not to do mm. that because she couldn't go through the process again. And so I know there's narrative about and there's a push, especially from rape crisis and other organizations to make um, the process more victim centered. Um, I don't think that we've gotten very far with that. And I think to pick up on that, Lenina, the one thing that we seem very clear about is that the the president's five-point gender-based violence emergency plan, first of all, I don't know why it's now an emergency because it has been for decades, but the emergency plan in number four says that there needs to be the support of victims and there needs to be, you know, kind of almost wrapping the victims in some kind of sort of protective system. And we know that is not the case because, you know, our whole justice system as an adversarial system is set up that the accused is innocent until proven guilty. And what that roughly translates into for the victim is that in the criminal justice system, they are assumed to be lying until it can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that they are not. So it is heavily swayed in favor of the accused. And in addition to that, what we're experiencing, and this is what I'd like you to sort of take us through, is that the filter of the criminal justice system disincentivizes people to come forward from the time they go to a police station, they arrive at the client service center, from the consultations if they are with prosecutors, to cross-examination, or in between the medicals that have to occur. And people need to understand that this process, I mean, the, the idea that someone would make a claim that is untrue is just bizarre for me because what you have to go through as a victim is just a nightmare. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I mean, you know, when you work in this space, um, I'm sure you also hear it a lot of the time, you know, it's the the question, you know, what about what about the false accusations, Mm. what everybody's afraid of. and there is not a lot of statistics around it, but there is one, I think, I think some international statistics place the false accusations at 2%. Mm. I agree with you, Luke. I think the process, um, the medical exam, the reporting, a three-year-long trial where you have to repeat yourself over and over and over again is definitely not worth a false accusation. 
um, or not incentivizes people. Um, with regard to, and, and yes, there aren't support services. I mean, we've seen even now, most recently, there was a draft victim support services bill that was put out. Um, and again, here, you know, to bring it back to to civic engagement, what government is trying to do, we understand, is reduce secondary victimization. But we need what a lot of organizations are pushing back against is that essentially it is creating another layer of red tape for organizations mm. who offer assistance. Um, who offer assistance, for instance, they must register if they mm. if they don't do certain things. The organization or the person providing support will be could be thrown in jail, get a fine, and you know there's a there's a lot to go into it. And I I, I bring this up because I want to encourage people to engage with those um, with a lot of the legislation that is coming up for amendments now, but also just you know to to look at how the system works and how the system doesn't work. Mm. Um, how it disincentivizes people from going through it and um, from from seeing it through to the end. And I mean, this is essentially what I do in my show. Um, we do not, as media, and you know, I'm part of the media. One of the things that was interesting to me is that we there's a lot of reporting on sort of gruesome cases or sensationalist um, cases. There's less reporting on the uh, the victim that gets turned away from the police station, as you said, mm. or the person who didn't get counselling or didn't get support or who's standing in court and is being interrogated in this advers adversarial system. I think we saw a bit of that in the... Um, there was one public rate... Mm, the Bashiri, the the, not Bashiri, the um, Timothy pastor in Port Elizabeth. Um, yes. yes. And, and that, 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 that woman who was so courageous to stand up what she went through on the stand was just completely diabolical. It was, it, you, you, you just watched it, just, just as somebody who wasn't in that, in that witness stand, somebody that hadn't been through what that young woman had been through and the way in which she was treated. She was, she was violated all over again. Exactly. And then to come back to the adversarial system and what Luke was saying, I mean, I, I went through those clips because I did a show around rape in the justice system and, and you know what those processes look like. Um, and there were two, there were there were two moments. I mean, the one was was actually heavily reported on when the prosecutor tried to get her to say how many I think centimeters or inches or something you know of penetration there was, um, which is the one thing. And the second thing was he kept. I mean, they went on for quite a few minutes trying to figure out how she fell onto the bed <laughs> to the point where she actually stood up got out of the witness stand and you know they tried to illustrate where where her legs were when she fell on the bed i mean it was absolutely ridiculous and so things like this are the things that we need to be reporting on this was one case that was made visible but over and over when you listen to victims who have been through the system um who have been to the system, we hear this happening again and again and again. Um, and so it's important for us to, you know, be looking into these things and to be questioning these things and to be questioning um, the justice system and how it deals with survivors. And I'll also add, Luke, you know, you spoke about, um, you spoke about false accusations and, and the adversarial system, you know, not that long ago, we had a cautionary rule that specifically mm. related to sexual assault. Mm. I mean, our law said that um, judges must exercise caution when women report sexual assault because they lie about it. Mm. 
Mm. Good Lord. And so, grandchildren. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so that was abolished in 1997. But I'm like, how many, how many judges, courts, clerks, etc., got the memo? Mm. Because it seems like um, it's still, you know, it still happens. Now, look, I think that that's an exceptionally important point because the the law, you know, that you and I engage with, you know, and it is our system and we do need to engage with it. And, you know, where, where it's not working, we do need to confront it. But it, it's a very blunt instrument. And the, the bluntness of it is in the, the, the lack of thought that the system applies to the meaning these offenses have for people. Because... A lot of gender-based violence is obviously related to people who are in relationships. There are often children involved. When people are sexually assaulted, I mean, it attacks people's entire identity. There's all the victim blaming. And there's no sense of trying to understand the meaning associated with the assault. They want to know. I mean, I've had people asking survivors of historical abuse, did he give you sweets? Now, how that's even relevant to the investigation by a police officer is bemusing. But what we do know is that when people don't have the professional skills to manage disclosures, they revert to their kind of personal knowledge, like these abusers are people on the side of the road giving you sweets, they're strangers. And they're not. There are deep, deep interpersonal relationships happening that the criminal justice system does not engage in the meaning associated with that. Yeah, exactly. I I one hundred percent agree with you. Um, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, someone said to me yesterday, um, you know, all the gains that were made between I think she said between 1994 and 2000, when a lot of our our legislation was put in place, a lot of training was put in place, a lot of, um, I think it was around that time they got the, um, you know, the court support workers in in child. Um, mm-hmm and child protection cases to assist with the testifying. Um, and she just said, you know, a lot of that stuff that we put into place have just been taken away mm. systematically over the last two decades. And um, we're seeing just almost no training, mm. you know. And those are, again, things that, you know, if I, me personally, trying to have come from a, a civic engagement background, trying to frame this as, what are the if we think the services are not adequate are we interrogating how much budget is going towards these um towards these types of initiatives or programs mm. you know are we looking at justice and dsd budget for training and is enough allocated are they doing two-day trainings or five-day trainings and what is being communicated in those trainings because you know there are different narratives there's 16 days now we're hearing about all the training and all the programs and mm. all of that and are we seeing progress on the ground mm. and who's tracking it and measuring it and and i think these types of things are important also when we look at the advocacy that we have so you know 2018 we had a beautiful brilliant massive march the total shutdown march that you know, has culminated into the creation of a, a national strategic plan on gender-based violence and femicide. Um, but again, just looking at how much reporting has has been done on this document after the march. What is are we are we looking at what's going into this document? Are we um, are we framing it correctly and taking into account the eight percent conviction rate and looking at um, 
who who are the judges that are sitting you know sitting and, and judging these cases or the police that are taking these statements again someone else the other day um Baldi Pandunen, who was the former director of the trauma center was saying she gave some training and a policeman one of the policemen in the in the program said he he had been taking statements from victims of gender-based violence wrong you know his whole career because they don't also understand the state of trauma that the victim mm. is in when she comes in. They don't, you know, they're asking all of these questions and they're not understanding the answers if the person is confused or doesn't know certain things or that they have to need to go back a few days later or perhaps need assistance. Um, yeah. For me, what's really horrified me over the last few weeks has been the examples that are being set and in as much as there are these plans and emergency plans and, and all sorts of things. When it comes to actual people raping children, nothing has been done. So there was a story just recently, it's in the news of a senior ANC official in Mpumalanga. He raped his eight-year-old twins. He is still working. How is that possible? How is it possible that he has raped his eight-year-old twins and he is a senior politician, a, a government person and still working and the other one comes out of a soccer club uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I don't know what soccer club it is and one of the soccer players has been um, accused of, of of raping a woman and the club has come out and said it's wrong to rape women and they support initiatives against gender-based violence but he's still playing soccer so what examples are being set and why are these men not help, being held to account yeah no, I, uh, I hear you and I, I think about this often and I think it comes back, you know, we circle back to um, Luke's statement again about the type of adversarial justice system we have, about people's questions, about uh, false accusations, about, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer and I, and I don't know what the answers are and I, I sometimes sit and I self-interrogate and I think, you know, I've got two brothers. Um, what are the, you know, often it's people we know. So how do we, how do we move forward and how do we need to be, how do we need to be um, looking into this issue in a way that is not the way we're looking into it now? Hmm. Um, it's just, it's, it's very difficult and it's very, it's very controversial, but we also know that it is happening. We know it's happening. We know that, and again, come back to the um, come back to those statistics. You know, when you have an eight percent conviction rate, this means that over ninety percent of rapists are just walking through amongst us. You know, and I know that uh, a lot of those victims have to go home. Those perpetrators are in their communities. They are victim blamed for a very long time. Mm. Perpetrators use the fact that they weren't convicted um, as they use it as ammunition to say. That that victim was lying. Hmm. So our our perception as society also, you know, the low conviction rate feeds this false accusation narrative. Hmm. And so, um, and and I've spoken with lots of victims who live, you know, the other day. I mean, I, I interacted with a mom whose daughter had been raped at nine years old by somebody in the community. And again, this guy was out in six years, six years time. The girl is now, you know, almost 16 and the guy lives around the corner. And, um, you know, this, and, and then, and then what? I keep asking, and then what? And then what? We have all of these victims 
They just have to go home and pretend it never happened. Absolutely. Try to find a way to get on with their lives. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is as we wrap up, aren't you, Lenina, terribly, terribly tired of strategic plans and workshops and 16 days and whatever? Because, you know, and I use the word whatever, because there are so many things and it's all this policy tourism and all the other things that government does. The truth of it is, if you and I had to have an honest conversation, the subjective experience of child and adult victims of GBV is deteriorating in our country. What are we going to do? To answer your question, Luke, yes. You know, there are, I won't lie. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm, again, I'm sure you know, it is very hard to do this work mm. um, and to engage with this and especially to engage with cases where there was no justice. But, um, and these days when I feel completely hopeless and depressed, you know, and I feel like I can't lift a pair. Yeah, sure. But, um, what I say is that um, one of the documents that I really go back to when I think about this is uh, a few years ago, the crisis release, the memoir of 40 years, you know, uh, of, of doing this advocacy work. Mm. And it was such an eye opener to me because it showed me that change is slow. Mm -hmm. But if you keep at it, you know, it's going to be hard and it's going to be slow. And some of the some of the activists, the older ones, have said, "We, you know, we don't know if we'll see the change in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. But if we, but we have to keep going because, for instance, what it was, uh, it took so long and it took so much work and it took multiple uh, and consistent submissions and fights and and everything to get marital rape being declared illegal. Mm. I mean, I often use this context now that if we were to go back, I mean, that wasn't that long ago. So if we were to go back and interrogate, many of our mothers were not able to refuse sex. Absolutely. And many of our mothers within that were legally raped, mm. you know, and there was nothing they could do. But now there's something they can do. And so my focus on, um, you know, making the justice system and processes more visible is that I'm hoping... I don't know, in the next, you know, in the future and definitely within for the next generation, because I, I have a daughter, I have nephews and nieces, that when they do report, that the next step will be that the justice system will work for them. And I don't know how that's going to be constructed, but we are not doing the work. It's important to remember we're not doing the work in isolation. We are building on, uh, we are adding bricks to the work that has already been done. And they have things, and it's important to acknowledge that these frameworks do exist, and that's a success. Um, and we build on, and we build on. The next generation will come afterwards, and they will build on the work that we have done. And I believe, and I remain hopeful, that we're moving towards a society and a system where, you know, there, there will be much less uh, gender-based violence and much stronger consequences for those who perpetrate it. Lenina, thank you so much. And I think that's a wonderful way to end our podcast for the year. So as Society Superheroes, this is our last podcast for 2020. We wish everyone a much better 2021. And we leave you with the uh, words of Lenina at the end of the 16 days where we remain hopeful. Because if we don't, we will lose our children. Thank you very much for tuning in over this year. And we will see you in 2021.